Welcome to Listening Through Time. This is Barbara Hawes, the archivist and historian of the New York Philharmonic. In this podcast series, we are going inside the orchestra, comparing how Philharmonic musicians over time played certain passages or licks in a variety of works. Are they the same or different? And why is that? Our guides in this journey are the Philharmonic players themselves, both current and former members. For the Philharmonic's 175th anniversary season, Sony Classical released a 65-CD box set of the orchestra's recordings dating from 1917 through 1996. And this got us thinking about new ways of listening and assessing the Philharmonic's history. Generally, recordings are identified by the conductor or composer rather than the orchestra. We speak of the conductor's interpretation, his vision of the work. Rarely do we listen for what a particular group of players might bring to the piece. We have probably never listened to a set of recordings to discern long-past influences that might still be heard in the playing of the orchestra. But that is the very opportunity offered by the Philharmonic's vast recording collection, one of the longest recording legacies in the world. What do we hear beyond the interpretation of a conductor, beyond the changes in the instruments themselves or a long-lost style of playing? Can we hear echoes of the past that may still be living on through the players themselves? For the real archive, the New York Philharmonic is sitting on stage. It is the musicians rehearsing and performing together, side by side, day in, day out, for years on end. Working in a symphony orchestra is like no other job. Physical proximity and sensitive cooperation is required for decades. And in this intimate, confined space, the stage, the experience and memories of one player are transferred to another in the next generation, most times imperceptibly. That player takes that experience, adds to it, and in turn passes on the memory into the future. For the New York Philharmonic is a musician's orchestra. While the players inhabit and express each maestro's point of view, in this ensemble, the players themselves provide the continuity. Today, we're joined by Phil Smith who in 2014 retired as principal trumpet after 36 years with the orchestra. Phil came to New York from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1978 to be co-principal trumpet with John Ware. Phil, it's great to have you with great us. Great to be here. Nice to be here, Barbara. And so I'm really thrilled to, to have you here. Uh, and and I think that today we'll, uh, let's start with the first excerpt of being you playing the opening of Mahler 5. Okay. It's a okay. favorite, obviously. Trumpet okay. player favorite. <laughs> this is this is uh, uh, Klaus Tenschnet. Yeah. Um, performance is 1980.
So, so Phil, this is 1980. You'd only been in the orchestra uh, two, two years, years yeah. right? And is this the first time you'd played the Mahler Five? Um, I, I don't think so, because Zubin, Zubin did the Mahler Five a lot. And what I don't remember is when we did a, rec we did a recording with Zubin. It's later. It is later. It's okay. later. It's yeah, later. but we had played it many times. Okay. And what's interesting to me is, is to hear this, because a lot of my... Well, obviously, as a student, you, you get impressions, you listen to recordings. I listened to Bruno Volter in the New York Philharmonic with uh, William Vacchiano. And so I listened to that concept for a while. But then, as a student, then I went to Chicago Symphony and I heard Boyd Herseth play it. And that was very different. And so all of these experiences kind of meld together. Now you show up as a young player, and your goal is to do the best you can and to do whatever the music director says. Uh, I can't, uh, and any good principal player is going to come in with an opinion. But uh, when you get a music director who now is going to put an opinion on you, you, you know, you, you want to make sure you get it right. So I, I remember famously, uh, with great affection, those rehearsals with uh, Tenshtek, because he really expressed to me how he wanted this opening played, not rushed. He wanted more, um, more, more uh, weight or more time given to the the long note. He wasn't in a rush to get through those four notes. He wanted the fourth note of that little figure to be long and recede. And as I remember him giving me a visual as if it was the hand of death that came out of a black cow, and it kind of came to you and it got to you by the fourth note, or it was close, and then it receded back into the darkness. And each one of those four note figures, his hand comes closer to you and recedes further back. So he was more interested in how long I held that fourth note. Wow. And that was something I hadn't heard. I, hadn't, I didn't hear that in Vakiano's recording, and I didn't really hear that in Herseth, but it was something that Tenstedt gave me, and I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. But what it required was me to take more time in these opening four-note figures before we get into bom, bom, ba bom. At that point, then, it was more the march of evil that sort of took place. So one was this idea of one opening thing, this hand of death, as if you were looking at a dead man on his deathbed and he was gasping for every last breath that he could grab. And then the picture changed to death and the victory march of death as it, as it came through. So this was something that was new to me and I totally embraced it and it's affected me ever since. That was the way I played it. Now it was interesting when we got to Zubin that many times I can remember, and it became a little bit of a joke, Zubin wanted to go much faster. And I would, he would give me an upbeat and a, a couple of beats of tempo in this opening, and I would just hold it back and hold the tempo back a little bit. And he would kind of look at me and grin, and that's the way we did it. And we took it on tour, we did it wherever. Then we did the recording. And I remember the recording down at um, the New Yorker. Um, we did it. And at the end of the mo movement, he looked at me and he said, are you all right with the opening? And I said, yeah, why? He says, well, you did it much faster than you usually play. I said, well, it's your recording. I'm going to do it the way you want it. I'm not, you know. He said, no, I want you to do it the way you've always done it. And so on that recording, he dismissed the orchestra and allowed me to sit in the studio by myself. And he went into the sound booth and said, okay, play the opening. 
And so what you hear on Up to that point, that's me sitting by myself in the studio oh, playing it. And I got to play it my way, which was a little, wasn't really my way. It was more towards Tenstedt's way. But so that's how things go and how things right. change. Right. But that, but that just sort of shows how, you know, yeah, you, so you developed your own uh, style and approach through Tenstedt's suggestion. Yeah. And then you actually convinced Zubin that that was the well, right way to go. Well, I don't know if I go. convinced him, well, but he allowed me to well, put it down on I, recording. I don't think Zubin <laughs> would have allowed you to do it if he hadn't so, been convinced that it was sounded right. Yeah. You know, that's that's so that's very Zubin to, to allow you your own space yeah. and your own way of doing yeah. things. That's that, it's really extraordinary. Should we should we maybe listen to Vacchiano and? Yeah, I think it'd be great to hear Vacchiano. You've got okay. The Bruno we Walter we, one. we have the Vacchiano with Bruno Walter conducting the Mahler Five in I love, I absolutely love hearing this because it does two things. You hear when Farcano plays this, he doesn't sort of make that fourth note as long as I, as Tenshed, sort of coached me to do it. But the other thing that you hear is when he gets into the march that he picks tempo up. Now, that's not in the score. It it doesn't say to do that, but that sort of is a tradition. The other thing that's interesting, and this is what's, I I love all of this. These These are great conversations that happen in lessons as well, private lessons, is that my brass banding experience told me when you're playing dotted eighths and sixteenths that you held the dot, you, you, you didn't play an eighth note with a sixteenth rest and a sixteenth note, da, 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 you played da, 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 sort of day, today, today, and I often re- use that word to my students, you got to tie these notes together and elongate them. So my whole brass banding experience got influenced into the way I play that bom dee da dom da dom. I'm playing those a little longer that time, right. and uh, uh, so it's just it's just fun to to hear this. You mentioned about the sounds of the orchestra and styles, and yeah, there is. As you listen as a student, you listen to the the legends, if you will, that have gone on before you, and you copy them. That's your that's your goal. That's that's really what you should do. As a student, you're you shouldn't be trying to forge your own way quite yet. You got to prove yourself to, before that happens. But in that process, then you pick up lots of these things. So there is sort of, and especially now, or from my generation until present, there's much more recordings that we're all listening to, and the criticism becomes that many of us trumpet players are beginning to sound pretty much the same. The differences between, say, a 
a glance or a Vacchiano and a Herseth from Chicago or a Margera, those differences are are becoming not so defined. We're becoming more modified, Homo- homogeneous, if you will. Yeah. And in in the way because we're listening to each other much more. They were they were sort of doing it at the time independently. Well, in this Vacchiano, and you knew Vacchiano, of course, very well. Uh, William, or Bill Vacchiano, joined the New York Philharmonic in 1936 during Toscanini's last season as the Philharmonic Music Director. He took over the principal chair in 1942 when Harry Glantz left to play full-time with Toscanini's NBC Orchestra. Vacchiano retired in 1973. This is the first recording of the Mahler Fifth with the Philharmonic, and it's uh, Bruno Walter, and of course Bruno Walter studied with Mahler himself. And one would think that probably he had been influenced by how Mahler yeah. wanted that played. Did did Vacchiano ever say whether how he d- decided to play, what determined his his style on this opening? Was there uh, we don't know, you know, what Bruno Walter did in this rehearsal to prepare them for that. Uh, but it's very interesting to have that kind of continuity. Well, it's an interesting discussion because I think, yeah, obviously the conductor comes in with an opinion and maybe he talked to Mahler or maybe he went over the score with Mahler and call it. But then he brings that to the players of the orchestra and the players either A, have their own musical opinions, or B, have their playing idiosyncrasies. And so that gets melded and put together. So uh, I don't remember Vacchiano really talking a whole lot about that, to be honest. Um, he, I remember him speaking, because he used the phrase to play these first four notes. He used the phrase, Smith, you got to play this, think of the words, terrible news, terrible news. <laughs> And so that's that was that was the impression that you were using. Terrible news, terrible news, and you had to go to news because the crescendo says to go to news. And uh, but what it doesn't say in the music is that it it gives you a crescendo for each one of those four note licks. But the idea that came to me, not from Varchiano, but from I don't know whether it came to me from me or from Tenstedt or from Herseth or from whatever to again try to make a longer line so that you did in those first four notes piano to a crescendo from piano to mezzo piano in the first one maybe then the next one mezzo piano to mezzo forte and the next one mezzo forte to forte that's not written in the music but it became a way for me to sort of elongate the line so i didn't just get four notes four notes four notes right and add add length to it so again these things kind of go down through time. Of course, Vacchiano also played the Mahler Fifth with Leonard Bernstein. And it would be interesting to see if he changes at all, because Lenny absolutely had definite ideas about what to do with this. And we have Lenny's score here. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, well, there's your, there's your crescendo yeah. there on this one. He's emphasizing this here, right? right? Exactly what you're saying. But you see these first four notes, every yeah. time they come, there's no dynamic change. So my concept is to grow a little you bit, grow. grow more, grow more, then go back to two. When the, when the next phrase starts again, go back to the second one, go right. further. Now you've gotten to the printed forte. Otherwise, you're not quite sure, how do I get from piano to forte? How does that exactly happen? Right. 
Yeah. Very interesting. And you know what? These recordings do change. That's the beauty of it when you get when you get um, the Vacchianos or the Hearses, so these guys that, that have a long career and they've recorded it multiple times, you do hear change. Right. And that's great because it shouldn't be rubber stamped. This is art. This is not science. Right. And you change as a musician. The interpretation comes at you another way. You don't want to just have another Xerox copy of what happened in the past. You want it to grow. Well, and just as you're growing, I mean, what we even see in the scores of, uh, of Leonard Bernstein is how his own interpretation yeah. grows over time. Uh, and I remember Kurt Mazur saying that every time he picked up a Beethoven score, he always found something new. Something he was new. learning it again. Yeah. And, and so just always growing in layers with him as well. Should we listen to, like, say, so just since we have this in our ears of your interpretation and, and Bill's Vacchianos, should we listen to Bud Hurst's? I, I Actually, it would the, be fun for me to hear it now okay. that we're doing this. I haven't done this for a while, so okay. it's kind of fun okay. to hear. So now it's this is this is I love this. This is great. This is I need to be doing this in lessons. You're giving me a great idea for next semester. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and it, what's wonderful here, it's interesting to hear Bud play this now because, you know, as I said, Varchiano's talking about terrible news. Well, you got to get. There's a lot to get that terrible news. You listen to Bud play it. He's not really quite getting that. It's more. So now we're talking about, am I going to single-tongue these first four notes? Which I can kind of spit out terrible news a little easier. Once I go into triple-tongue, now those first four notes fly a little more. Uh, so that becomes a personal choice. I've always liked to, I've preferred the Varchiano method of single-tonguing it. Because I can, I like that slow, I to me it creates more tension. But what you do here with Herseth is you hear this growth through these especially in the next phrase. Then you pick up a little bit what I talked about. He's not putting so much space between those dotted notes. And he's tying that together. And that, of course, that appeal to me because that's the way I'd learned in brass banding things so it's all, this is fantastic yeah. stuff no see and you all don't sound alike at no, all no it's all different and <laughs> that's the way it should different. be it's right yeah. that's right and uh, and and it is I wonder um this recording with Bud Herseth is with the Chicago Symphony and and Schulte yeah um, so it would be interesting at some point to ask, you know, how Schulte prepared the orchestra at that beginning, what, what mood he said they were going to have to, they should strive for. 
Uh, you know, to be honest, I think most conductors, they just conduct and they, they trust the musicians to sort of put it out there. Uh -huh. the condu a good conductor doesn't speak unless he has to. Or unless he well. shouldn't, but he does anyway. <laughs> you, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I can just see Schulte. I mean, his whole image that was with that was a little faster, a little more energetic, and that was the way Schulte was. He was kind of, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I was going to use the phrase herky jerky. His his he body was. language is more kind of snap. Right. You know, it wasn't wasn't logy. No, you can hear that in that yeah. one, right? Whereas Bruno Walter, it was much more this very gentle yeah. well, and yeah. and and uh, almost graceful conductor yeah. Yeah. that would be out there. And it's interesting you can you can almost you if you've seen them you can almost hear that in that exactly. in that opening plane. Yeah, I don't know what Tenstedt was like. I don't remember his Tenstedt's, style. Well, again, I can see Tenstedt, and again, he wanted me to elongate. Ba -da -da -dum, that fourth note each time. So every time we got there, he gave me a sweep of an arm. Da -da -da mm. And an extending of the right hand or the left hand saying longer on that note. Da -da 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 he wanted that longer. I was thinking, get through it like Vacchiano had done. That's what I was more familiar with was the Vacchiano Bruno Volta one. Um, uh, or, and as you can hear, Herseth is even going quicker. Right. So that I'd live with that for three years. Right. Um, so Frentenschitz says, take your time on that. It was like, really? Yeah. I love playing Mahler with Lenny because Lenny was a, a painter. Mm. He, he, he wasn't a time beater. His motions weren't, they weren't, you know, basic beating, you know, down, left, right, up, you know, it wasn't that, it was, it was, it was picture painting. And so you saw in him, his body oozed what he wanted. It didn't necessarily show it in, hmm. in, if it was say, Mazel, Mazel could have given you every one of those four notes, but da da with a baton. <laughs> Lenny wasn't that way. He, he gave you an impression. Ah. And, uh, and so he, re he relied on him giving you the impression and you giving him the specific kind of thing. Hmm. But I love doing these things with Lenny. Oh, I would guess. I mean, they were from his heart and they soul, his inner inside. core, right? Yes. They really did. Yeah. And you can see it. You know, what the surprise uh, that I had once his scores came to the archives uh, was just how hard he did work, mm -hmm. you know, because he always had the impression that it was just emoting of the moment. Uh, and yet when you go and you actually look at his scores, you can see exactly how he crafted the entire structure. It could be 20 pages long, but he knew where he wanted to be and how he wanted to build up to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the good amazing craftsman. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it's not just beating your arms. It's not just, you right. know, there's a purpose. Right, or yeah. even out there, everyone thought he was just feeling the moment, but not at all. No. He, in order to feel the moment, he, he prepared incredibly. Yeah. Uh, and you really see this in the Mahler fifth score as yeah. well. But, you know, in, in, in before Bill Vacchiano, uh, we had the great uh, principal trumpet, Harry Glantz. Yeah. Harry Glantz was hired as principal trumpet in 1923, while Willem Mengelberg was principal conductor of the Philharmonic. And, and partly the other, the other side of doing this is that we have all these recordings. I mean, we are one of the most recorded orchestras in the world. And so we have now this uh, set out for our 175th anniversary 
and it begins in 1917 and goes up to 1996 because that's when Sony was recording us. Of course, we have many more recordings after that. But so this gives us an opportunity to listen to Harry Glantz, who is known as Toscanini's principal trumpet. Right. That's sort of his reputation. Now we'll go back to an early recording, 1928, and listen to the battle scene from Richard Strauss's Ein Heldenleben, conducted by Villa Mengelberg. <laughs> So, so there cool. you have Harry Glantz and Max Schlossberg. Yeah. Now, it's hard to know exactly who's playing here. I, I, uh, from doing a little resource uh, searching here, I've, I've found someone who believes, and I think now listening to it, I would agree, that Harry Glantz is playing the first B-flat part. Uh, I'm not sure who'd be playing the first E-flat part, but it, there's a lot of neat things here. I was thinking about this coming in. When you think about Harry Glantz and some of the names that, that you talk about Roddenkirk and, and, and Heim and all of these names that are there. And you see that these famous names, they played in CSO, they played in New York Philharmonic, they played in Philadelphia, you know, that, that kind of thing. It seems to me, I was thinking, they were, they were, uh, they were like gemstones. They were gemstones. Today, we got so many trumpet players, we're almost a dime a dozen. <laughs> No, you're not. And these guys, these guys were great <laughs> players, amid not many. There were very few great players, hmm. and so there was always competition to get these guys in the orchestras. And you can hear it. You can hear on that opening little fanfare, Harry Glantz would have been the second entrance, the higher note, not but Harry Glantz would have been so he would have been the higher voice. And then, and you can hear the quality. Why was he so good? You can hear the quality here. That It's a fat, rich sound. What's interesting stylistically to me is that it's a 1920s style. It's very hard attack, very short note. Not the way we would play it now. It, the, our concept of this would be much more flowing. Uh -huh. um, but you hear beauty in his sound. Again, if you listen to the other trumpet player playing the bum, 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 it's good, but it's not Harry Glantz. When Harry Glantz comes in with his it's another notch of quality above that E-flat player at that right. point. Right. So it's just really great playing. Right, right. So you don't think the other one might be Max Schlossberg? I don't know. You I, just yeah. can't tell on that? Um, well, if we had... Great historical rec records here. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, this is 23-24 yeah. uh, roster. 
So. I, I, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. It okay. really is. All right, we can't put that down. In in this in looking at this roster from this time, we have both Glantz and, and Schlossberg. Glantz is just starting here in 24, but Schlossberg started the year after Mahler was music director. So he's been around then since 1911-12. But Max Schlossberg was also a teacher. We are all students of Max Schlossberg. <laughs> we are all, to this day, we're all playing Schlossberg studies. And what does that mean? Well, it's he was such a great... Uh, sometimes the guys who were not necessarily the, the musical stars, per se, they weren't the top players, but they were terrific teachers. Sometimes the top players, it's something that you can't teach. Mm. It, there's a quality there that's innate, and it's just God-given. But, but the Max Schlossbergs, some of the great teachers of trumpet history, have been the guys who were not the first trumpet players, but maybe were the second or third or the guys down the line, who knew how to teach trumpet and knew how to make you a better player. But then what came in on top of that was the natural gift on top of that, which elevated somebody to become the first trumpet player. Right. And Schlossberg, we all studied with Schlossberg. Harry Glantz studied with Schlossberg. Bill Varchiano studied with Schlossberg. Joe Alessi Sr. studied. Everybody studied with Schlossberg. And then it got passed on to Varchiano, where everybody and their uncle studied with Varchiano. <laughs> you look through the last stop to Carnegie Hall, I think, is the book uh, about Varchiano's history. And in the back, there's an appendix of who studied with Varchiano. I think everybody in the world is on that list. <laughs> and uh, it's just a, a wonderful... Well, this is also interesting. Harry Glantz's other teacher is Christian Roddenkirchen, yep. who came from CSO. Right but was hired by Mahler, and so he was here during Mahler's two seasons as, as music director. Well, that's what I was saying. In a way, th th these guys were great players, and, yeah. and they got, you know, they, yeah. they were the Mickey Mantles of their day. Right, you know. right. So, uh, but it's also interesting, just for, for me, is that, you know, if there, if there are concerts, like those concerts you wish you could have heard, but, yeah. you know, you can't, I mean, most of mine are, are of of, of Gustav Mahler conducting the New York Philharmonic. You know? Yeah, it, you and, wonder what you, that would have been like. What was that the like? composer as conductor really having the opportunity to put his stamp on it. Right, yeah. right. And what is he, you know, we, we know we have a Beethoven seventh score in the archives um, where Mahler conducted the Beethoven seventh before he started as music director, and he takes out the first high trumpet note right there on page one. And he was severely criticized for doing that because most of the world uh, thought he was doing it because he assumed he knew better than Beethoven. Pierre Boulez looked at this score um, and said, well, obviously he's having problems with his trumpet player. <laughs> <laughs> it was a practical. Yes. It was a practical uh, decision on Mahler's site, which most a lot of conductors will make those decisions, yes, right? Yes, that, right? that is a real... And, experience. and what's interesting is that the trumpet player on the roster when Mahler first conducted the Beethoven 7th is Finkelstein. And then the next year when he starts as music director is when he brings in Roddenkirchen. Yeah. So I think Pierre's probably right. Yeah. Even though it's, you know, and that's only a conductor would look at that and think that way. Yeah. Well, like I say, the, these, these great trumpet players of their day, there were fewer of them back there. Mm-hmm. There's more 
you know, there's just more of us. It's like anything. It's like sports. You look at, you know, the Joe DiMaggio's of the day now. Every team's got a, you know, in a, in a way, the quality has gotten so good. Right. Uh, right. So, yeah. Right. It, but that's, yeah. Well, they didn't have as many conservatories. There just wasn't, you know, you that just, kind of yeah. system set up that you yeah. devote your whole life. You didn't have, yeah. you couldn't be a musician 52 weeks a year. No. You didn't have that livelihood. You had to do a lot of other things in order to just pay yeah. the rent. Well, Glantz himself started out uh, he, learning from his family, mm-hmm. and learning to play, but he, he learned violin and cello. <laughs> Did he really? And, he, and you read about it, and he says he hated it. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, he picked up a trumpet and went, yeah, this is me. <laughs> and who knows, you know, that, that, that sort of trumpet player head, that ego, that personality that just it fell into the trumpet <laughs> that wasn't in the first violin. And, you know, off, but that innate thing comes through. Right. And you hear it in that. You hear the quality of his sound in comparison to the others, and it's a notch above. Huh. That's great. But, I mean, Harry Glantz, when he plays that, it's like, bam, it's like a knife through butter. It's wow. Like, oh, it's like, wow, yeah, make sure you play it like that. Wow. You know? Okay. Don't get all cornetti. Since I was a young cornetti kid, don't <laughs> get all cornetti and go, <laughs> no, it's got to have. Uh, it's good. Yeah. Do you think that's a philharmonic style in a way to be more that way over time? No, I think no. it's just... Uh, no, you no. Would talk, I was thinking about this when you were talking about orchestra sounds. And with all due respect, I'm not sure if I agree with you. Okay, <laughs> okay. I, I've often, you know, because I heard it said so many times about the Chicago sound. And I always think, you know, what makes the orchestra sound is the sum of the parts that are in the orchestra. And when that's when those players change, to some extent there's a carryover because others have stayed and wanted to change, but as that all begins to change, and especially as you change your top voices, your lead voices, it will start to shift, and that the Chicago quote-unquote sound that I'm thinking about when I played in it, which was, it wasn't the heyday of the Herseth regime, his heyday was even before that with Reiner. I was on the back end of that in a way, but still there was a consistency from Reiner to Schulte well, that's changed now because mm-hmm. those players have changed. Herseth is gone, and Clevenger is gone, and Arnold Jacobs is gone. Your top and bottom have gone, Herseth and Jacobs. And that Chicago sound is different. Um, the New York sound, I think that changed from Fracchiano Chambers to, you know, Smith, Myers, and Leslie. That, that all changed. So, and it'll change again. It just is. It's it, as it should. Right. You know, so I, I'm, I'm, I think that there is a continuity to some extent, but as folks change, so that sound will change because you've changed various stops on the organ, and then when those all those stops are different, the total sound is different, and then you bring in a conductor who adds another dimension, interpretive dimension to that, and that changes too. Right. Oh no, I just think it's a different way of listening to recordings over time. Yeah. Um, because we tend to listen to recordings either from the conductor's point of view, the soloist, the composer. But to try to get into sort of more of, of how you listen, you know, do you, Harry Glantz over 40 years, mm-hmm. Bill Vacchiano over 40 years, you over 40 years, mm-hmm. you're, you're bringing this continuity no matter who's conducting it. Right. 
and and I think sometimes we we hear the orchestra differently if we just tune our ear slightly to who who is there and and that's something that uh, you know they didn't used to put rosters into recording so you didn't know no you know it was it was like they were interchangeable parts it didn't right. matter who was playing principal trumpet uh, back in the 20s or 30s because that wasn't but you know of course beginning in the 90s not until the 90s did we start putting in the exact roster of this is who you're hearing yeah. and they're distinctive well when you go back early like before glance when you go back there you, you, the rosters change almost annually because yeah. it was a different business, sure. a different musical world then. But when you get to the Harry Glantz thing and people want to, to pull this star from San Francisco to New York to NBC, and then you get a length of time, and that, and you're right, it, there begins to be a, a style that's established within the group because that, that personality is there. Right. And then as we've gone through time, you'll see that again. That's a great discussion. You, you also have to add to that the style of the time, like I was saying, some of the, right. the, the older things are a little more short and pecky, especially in a trumpet or brass approach. Now it's a little thicker. Um, the mouthpieces of the time, Harry Glance is playing on, and, and early Herseth, they were these guys were playing on smaller mouthpieces than now we're all playing these bucket mouthpieces trying to get bigger sounds. So um, the the bigger the mouthpiece, the larger the sound. Yeah. Well, do you think that maybe the hall is also the halls got bigger? Do you think that halls got bigger? Contributed to yeah, that? Yeah, that happens. Yeah. You get um, you also so you got history of thing. You get uh, recording techniques change. The how the how it, the orchestra's picked up is mm -hmm. different. Instruments change. Harry Glantz is playing primarily on a B flat trumpet most of his life. For instance, if we're playing pictures at an exhibition and we get to the Schmoyle movement, uh, the first trumpet typ typically picks up a piccolo trumpet and plays that. We'll hear a 1945 recording of Pictures at an Exhibition with Bill Vacchiano playing trumpet, conducted by Arthur Rudzinski, then the Philharmonic's music director. trumpets in those days. I mean, right. maybe later in his career, maybe on a D trumpet. You always played it on a piccolo I trumpet? I always played it on a piccolo trumpet. differences, historical, concept, recording technique, 
sound instruments, mouthpieces, and it, it changes from year to year. It's amazing. We are now going to hear an excerpt from the Overture to the Flying Dutchman, conducted by Willem Mengelberg in 1925. <laughs> great to hear these old recordings. It really is cool. Larry must be in there saying, if only we had had the technique, you know, we lose the strings a lot in this stuff. But uh, that's all right. I, I love it. I remember hearing, not just as an aside story to this, I remember the first time we did, uh, we recorded Zarathustra with uh, Zubin. And the brass is wailing at the end of Zarathustra, and we're going to town, and we're listening to the recorded as it comes out. And all of a sudden, out of the left field comes this harp gliss, and totally buries the brass. I'm thinking, <laughs> I never even heard that harp in the performances. But uh, it's interesting to hear this. Again, to hear the style and the, the approach and the, the colors, the sounds, um, you know why these guys were who they were? Because it's secure. They didn't have the ability to, to do multiple takes and things like that. It's secure. Right. It's, it's clean. It's, you, you know, these guys were hired because the conductors knew they would get it the first time and it would be done, you know. Um, and is this sort of the same way you would do it today, you think? Or? No. no. I, I was interested to hear when you hear ta-ta-ti, Now, they were doing it very defined, and um, and obviously the conductor was happy with that. That's what he wanted because it was so consistent through the sections and the orchestra. Today, again, we kind of we kind of I think we use a little more style in this. But mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we kind of flick them off a bit more. Um, you know, it gets into the argument of how's it written. Off the top of my head, I can't remember how it's written, so I should be careful what I say. But um, there's an element of you know, a half inch is a half inch, and a quarter inch is a quarter inch, and a sixteenth and a thirty-second, and you know, there's a re- there's a relativeness to that. But then there's also an element where you stylistically say, well, what is this? I know what the guy wrote, and I can play it like that. But maybe in my soul, I'm hearing these little fanfare things being flicked off a bit more. Right. but da dum. You know, doesn't ha- does it have to be so mathematically correct? You right. know. Uh, so that's a whole argument that to this very day musicians will have. Um, what's written versus what, what style you put in on it. Right. But it's interesting to hear how they played it, not perhaps the way we would do it today. Right. Yeah. Right. And also they didn't have, I mean, they didn't have the size of the orchestra. Uh, you, 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 didn't, you, know, you just didn't have the, the depth of string sound that, that we would have in big orchestras today. So. But great playing. Again, great playing to listen to. And now Phil Smith in the same work, The Flying Dutchman, from a Philharmonic radio broadcast in the mid-1980s. ¶¶ 
excerpts from uh, 1940 with Stravinsky conducting himself. Uh, so this would be, this, this is still Glantz. This is Glantz doing this. This is still Glantz. So yeah. let's hear Harry Glantz. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's before he leaves to go to the NBC Symphony with Toscanini. Uh, but this is, uh, would be interesting to hear. This is the Rite of Spring? Yes. The opening trumpet call. Bum, bum, da, bum, 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 bum because again we're playing this in a contemporary world on piccolo trumpet before me you guys might have played it on a D or something like that I'm interested to hear what Harry Glantz sounded like probably on a B flat trumpet maybe a D be interesting to hear what comes So now you've got to put this in the context. This is when, 1940? Yeah. So, I mean, again, musicians now have spent so much time with time and theory and all of this. Time-wise, it's a little loose. I mean, it's great playing. I don't want to sound that way, but... At that point, the trumpet player should be thinking triplets to get that little lick. It sounds a little bit like Harry's kind of just doing a bit of a trilly kind of thing. Um, but what, I, what I'm blown away with is the sound that he's playing with. Huh. I don't know what he's playing on at this point, but it, it sounds perfect. It's, it's bright, it's edgy, it cuts through. Um, and that's the Harry glance that I would expect to hear, that you just, he, you know, he's so far ahead of his time that that just sounds it sounds wonderful with Stravinsky this could be a real kind of challenge too it's such new music yeah, right yeah. yeah he's he's definitely from the old school in yes. this too so um, you know Strav um, uh, Kuzovitsky had uh, the score complete uh, not completely but rebarred uh, because he had such a difficult time with the tempi changes in yeah. this and that so but maybe we should listen you want to listen to another the Ancients, the March of the oh, Ancients. the whole thing. That's Again, that's a pretty wide scoring for, for brass. I mean, I'd like to hear if he's, if he's wailing on this. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's interesting because I'd I'd love to know what he was playing on that. You can't tell. You can't just tell. Listening. No, it no. doesn't. It's you know we we're using small trumpets to try to nail bum 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 and keep that high note just screaming, uh, losing our eyesight as we're going. You know, tunnel vision <laughs> setting in. So I don't know what he's using, but you can hear he's getting a note bum bum. He's just kind of hitting it and coming off of it, but. Uh, Great stuff. Great to hear. I mean, this is challenging. It doesn't sound like he sustains it like no, you it do at all no. when, I rem- when you've been playing it. But, I mean, if I had to play it perhaps on a – if I was doing it on a D trumpet, I might not sustain it. And for sure, if I was doing it on a B flat or a C, there's no way I'd be sustaining it. But what's interesting is the composer is conducting this. Yeah. You know, well, you we know, f- like I say, it's, it's what Stravinsky is hearing, the right composers are hearing it in their head, and they're not necessarily going to get – from the players at the time, what they're hearing in their head. Right. It takes a few generations down the line to go, well, wait but, a second. But no offense, but what makes you think that you're playing what he had in his head? Because that's what's on the part. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't bum, 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 bum. It's bum, 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 bum. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, uh, you're right. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 because I have your performances in my head, I think that's the only way to do it, yeah, right? But, he, but then you listen to this and yeah, you say, he, and the conductor, the composer is conducting it. You say, hmm. If he he might have heard this and done a complete revision and said the flipping trumpet players just screaming too loud, get him out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Who do they think they are, yeah. trumpet players? Yeah, and right. just, yeah these guys have turned into jocks. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So. Yeah, it's good stuff to hear. Okay. All right. Maybe we should just listen to a little bit of a um, Vacchiano doing um, the Scream of Ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Vacchiano, Vacchiano had a wonderful. I mean, what Vacchiano was known for was this big, thick sound. And I remember as a kid, that's that's what you listen to Vacchiano for. It sounded, his, his trumpet sound was just this big, fat circle of sound. Some wonderful mm. stuff there. What's really neat is you hear Vacchiano playing with this big, fat, round sound. And he had a nice vibrato, had this rich vibrato over the top. And, and yeah, that's the sound that I remember listening to that and going, yeah, that's, that's this luscious sound that I like. And then what's neat is then a little later, towards the end of what we just heard there, you'll hear trumpets that are muted. And very piercing, beep, bop, bop. Well, and that's that's John Ware. Ah. And John Ware had a different sound. John John's sound was, you know, he could. I remember when I came here, hearing John play, I thought, wow, they don't need Phil Smith here. They got John <laughs> Ware. And John had this. He was just a little guy, but man, he could put out a sound that was just like laser. And you hear that there. So you hear this luscious, soloistic Del Varchiano, and then you hear John leading over the top on that. Now, John could also play pretty. And when you get into this box set that you got, you got him playing the uh, Mahler third post horn with Lenny. And that is probably 
the epitome. We all listen to that and try to copy what, what John did there. We have covered a lot. Yeah. Is there, uh, we've covered, I think we didn't say, I'm glad you got John Ware in because we hadn't mentioned John mm -hmm. Ware. So, right. So, John Ware began in 1948 and was with Vacchiano for 24 seasons. What's that, what's that like? Just one thing, to, to play with someone for that long. I mean, do, do you, is it, is it like being married, kind of? or <laughs> <laughs> It is, in a lot of ways, in the good and the negative ways, you know? <laughs> the little things that irk you about a marriage, like, you know, and they irk you about each other. That, that that's, It's exactly the same. But you also, you sit back and you reflect on the gift, the giftedness that that person has, you know? And um, that when, when John and I shared um, those first, my first 10 years here as co-principals, Oftentimes, Zubin was very good, and, and we were good at picking the pieces, whether John played first or I played first, that suited who we were at that time. And, and um, you know, I was just in awe of John when I came. Like I say, he was just, uh, he was such a strong player and, and that. So, yeah, it, it, it is it's very much like a, a marriage, and, um, but you learn from each other. Well, I was going to say, because I, I, I don't, I don't know of another kind of job, where you you ha, you you really sit every day in such close proximity to one another for so for decades, mm -hmm. for decades. I mean, so you know, I'm sure you have those days where like you don't want to get along, but you have to get along in order yeah. to make it work. Right. That uh, that is always the case, and that and that's the beauty of it, and that's the way it should be, in that in that you have to relinquish personal feelings with anybody that you might have in the orchestra and work together and you know it's working right um, I mean I've been uh, uh, in situations like with Phil Myers Phil Myers is a powerful person as a, as, a, as a human being and sometimes he and I would be down in the locker room and we'd have a disagreement about something and yet the, I never felt that that came to the stage mm -hmm. we would come to the stage and we would, I knew we were working with each other. If I was feeling, if I was feeling like my soft playing wasn't responding real well, and Phil had a line before me, he would crescendo in and just set me up so that I didn't feel like I was coming in on eggshells. 
and and that's the way it ought to be. That's that's where art is triumphing right. over over the it you know the ugliness of human relations and, and <laughs> sometimes and and it's just that's the, really the way it should be. It's it's a tough job because you do sit with each other, and you've got to remember the point of what we're doing right. and not let your humanness get in the way. I think it's a beautiful place to yeah. end. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Phil Smith in particular for coming in to talk with us today. It has truly been a pleasure and so much fun. For deeper digging into the programs, rosters, and even the marked scores used by the conductors we talked about today, please visit the New York Philharmonic Leon Levy Digital Archives at archives.nyphil.org. Further thoughts, ideas, and insights about our discussion are always welcome. Please email archives at nyphil.org. A special thanks to Frank Villella, director of the Rosenthal Archives at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, for providing us with that orchestra's excerpt of Bud Herseth playing the Mahler. The recording engineer for this podcast is Larry Rock, the Philharmonic's audio director, assisted by Ian Good. The program was edited by Charles Van Tassel, who also composed our podcast theme. Mm-hmm.